Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. Back in 2020, on our 18th episode, we talked about my baby brother, TJ, who passed away due to alcoholism and the Conversation wasn't part of our normal narrative, but it is such an important topic to keep alive. During that episode, I mentioned that I wouldn't rule out doing more episodes to discuss addiction and its effects, and that is exactly what we will be talking about today as Abby and I welcome Jordan, the CEO of the Reckless Saints of Nowhere, to the show. Would rather serve God than serve Caesar, you Abby, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Craig? I'm doing pretty good. Zencaster's being a, a butt, and so we don't have <laughs> we don't have video today. So today it's not a good sight. And Jordan, my friend, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good, brother. How are you? We're doing pretty good. Um, I live outside of Memphis right now, and it's beautiful, which means it's hot as hell. Jordan, the reason I wanted to get you on is because, and I mentioned this before we started recording. TJ, my my baby brother, he was 36 when he passed away in 2020. It was right after, well, what the the pandemic stuff started in March of 2020, and then was it six months later he was dead. Now we knew that TJ had a problem. We talked to TJ. We talked to TJ about it, and TJ wasn't receiving us. But I was with mom in Northwest Arkansas for Christmas, and we were sitting on her back porch and. She started talking about the reckless saints of nowhere. And I was listening to her and she was talking about, I wish we'd have known about these folks prior to 2020. And I'm listening to her and I, I, I sent Abby a text. I said, Hey, I think we ought to get these, these folks on the show just to kind of keep this conversation alive because I want to keep this conversation alive because I want folks to understand that there are things going on out there that, uh, that people aren't, aren't paying attention to. And it's sad. I mean, but but when it affects your family personally, you take more notice. And that's that's a sad way to look at it, I think. But it is what it is. I want you to give us a little background of yourself, whatever you want us to know about you. And then then we'll get into the Reckless Saints of Nowhere, because I want folks that maybe know somebody or are struggling with addiction to know about the Reckless Saints of Nowhere because y'all's organization is incredible to me. Oh, well, I, I love thank you. Are doing it and, and, and y'all put so much work into it and y'all, y'all are very dedicated and very passionate about this topic. So tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll go from there. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, my name is Jordan Blake Parker. I was, I was born and raised um, in Salina, Oklahoma. It's a very, very small town. Uh, Salina in the Boatman area. Uh, I'm I'm a recovering addict, I guess you could say, or ever. I don't know what the right way to say that. Uh, I used to be addicted to drugs. Mine started very differently than a lot of people, not not in the area. A lot of people um, in our area is methamphetamine or is uh, things like that. I I was uh, hurt pretty bad in a motorcycle wreck when I was 12 or 13 years old, and so uh, that started um, my road to addiction. Now, at first, I, I had these wrecks and and 
I, lo- I love to ride motorcycles. My family rode. Uh, my dad was very big into them. And we were always on dirt bikes, it seemed like, when I was at my cousin's house. And I got hurt. Um, my back got hurt. I lost a kidney. So basically what happened was um, I started having surgeries to repair my, my kidney, to repair my back, some other things. And every time I was in the hospital and I would get out, they, they couldn't really figure out what was going on with the kidney. And I was just in massive amounts of pain. And so I was one of the first, I was one of the first, if not the first person uh, prescribed Oxycontin in Oklahoma. So Oxycontin at that time was brand new. It looked like a savior to a lot of people's pain problems because if you, I don't know if you, if you guys recall this, but they, when it came out, the F, they bribed the FDA, Purdue Pharma did to say that it was non-addictive. Wow. So it was supposed to really be this amazing, yeah, this amazing, yeah, they just settled to the tune of like billions of dollars, like $30 billion or something Purdue Pharma had to. They, they bribed the FDA. They said it was non-habit forming. And, and so it really, my family really looked at it. I mean, here's this 13-year-old kid, 14-year-old kid having surgeries like crazy. Um, they can't control his pain. I, I think when I was 14, they x-rayed my kidney and I had like 40-something kidney stones in it. And I was passing about 100, 100 of them a year. So they couldn't really, they didn't want to take the kidney out because I was so young. They feared the damage done to the other kidney. And so they kind of just strung me along. And uh, I would leave the hospital every time with higher and higher doses and, and higher medication scripts of, of Oxycontin. So that's what started it. I had about 19 surgeries before I turned 20 uh, years old. I had a lot of metal put in my spine, my hip, stuff like that. Uh, anything that every organ you can take out of me has been taken out of me, I think. And so that's what got me on prescription pain meds back then. You know, they didn't want to do morphine. So they said this new thing called Oxycontin, that's a brand new thing. So that's what it got me started. Now, I tell you that because that's truly what led to, um, I was on fentanyl, I was on morphine, all that by the time I was 19 years old. And so I got on the needle really heavy shortly after that. And then it just, I mean, it just spiraled. So I, I was forced into treatment when I was, um, when I was 28. Um, I hit a United States Marshal in the, in the face at a bar fight with a, with a beer bottle. And so I was, my, my addiction had just gone full blown to where I was just a, just an absolute psycho. I mean, I was, I was getting arrested every weekend and, and it really, it was, it all stemmed from trying to kill the large amounts of pain I was in. I mean, it is what it is what it boiled down to, but mm. a judge had mercy on me and said, you know, you got eight years in federal prison hanging over your head, but if you'll go to a treatment center, I'll consider, you know, expunging your record. So they sent me to Teen Challenge, which is a is a faith based program, but it was it was in Neosho, Missouri. You did four or five months there, and then you went and did ten months in Cape Girardeau. So I did a fifteen month program total. And that's that's when everything changed for me. And and Reckless started out of kind of that chaos that when I got back, I honestly had no desire to to help anybody. I know it sounds terrible now, but I wanted to be left alone. I wanted to have health insurance. I wanted to work at a factory and, and have a family. And I, I'd never, I'd never had the ability to not be on drugs. Every I didn't, I couldn't go on vacation. I couldn't go anywhere because I had to have so much drugs to even function. I mean, I was, I was shooting up 10, 12 times a day at my peak every day of my life, you know, and just my, my veins were collapsing on me. I was, a, I was an absolute brutal addict. And so I had a very simple plan for my life, but uh, God had a different one, I guess, because it's slowly, People, I was such a notorious dirtbag in my hometown, I think, that <laughs> people started saying, man, there's something different about this guy. Like it was, I didn't even have to tell anybody I was sober. You could just tell because I wasn't fighting and I wasn't doing stupid stuff all the time and I wasn't wrecking motorcycles, I guess. And so 
people just said, Hey, can you help me get sober? And that's how reckless started was, was people coming up to me saying, I really want to be sober, but I don't know how to do it. And I'm scared I'm going to die. Um, yeah, a guy walked up to me in a supermarket and said, can you help me get sober? And he broke down crying in the middle of like, you know, a grocery store. It was the weirdest. And I'm, like I said, I'm high functioning autistic before the show. And I, I, Abby can confess to this. That's, that's like a nightmare for us. You know what I mean? It's like someone's breaking down crying, trying to talk to me in a grocery store full of people. I'm like, <laughs> it's, I'm not cut out for this at all. Like I was, and so I, I, I didn't really know what to do, but I told him, I said, look, man, I remember trying to talk him out of it almost. I know it sounds sick, but it was like, yeah. you don't, you don't want to do what I did because that back then the whole popular thing was going to like a 30 day treatment program. Now they don't work. I mean, they have like a 4% success rate. But that was the popular thing. And so I just thought that's what every addict wanted. Mm-hmm. And he goes, no, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And I said, dude, I'll take you to, the, to a treatment center if you want to go. So he spent the night on my floor detoxing. And then I drove him uh, to the treatment center in Teen Challenge in Neosho, Missouri. And that's when Reckless was born kind of because they wouldn't take him unless he had like 800 or $1,000. And I said, well, you know, he doesn't have any money. And they were like, well, we can't take him unless he has, he's got to pay this entry fee. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get them to understand because they're not, I don't know, you know, if he had $8, it would be up his arm. Like, you know, I mean, like, he doesn't have $800. Like, when when you're working with the addicted, even something I knew from that desperation was you have a very limited window. And if they say yes to treatment, you got to jump on that. And I didn't want things like money standing in the way. So the first, I think the first guy I paid for, and then I think, I think I ended up paying for like five or six. And then I ran out of money. I had some savings, but I quickly burned. I was working for like 10 bucks an hour at a security firm. And so I burnt through that money really quickly. And then I was still trying to, to help people because within a week of giving my phone number out, I got like 200 and something calls like within a month Oh wow! of people wanting help. And it was just, it literally was just me saying, I'll take you to treatment or I'll help you in an intervention or whatever. So I was going to like trap houses, like trying to talk people into going to, it was like the most stupid, dangerous thing. Uh, I was getting, I, I got my nose broke a few times because they would, they would bite me when I tried to get them to go to treatment, guns, knives pulled on me. But what, out of that chaos, I started financing addicts getting into treatment. So I would go to these treatment centers and I would find them in the state they were in because I was getting calls from Arkansas and Georgia and all these other places. So I'd find the treatment center that would take them. And then I would say, look, I'll pay you $200 this paycheck. I'll pay you 300 out of the next one. And I'll just keep these payment payments going until I get you paid off. So that's how Reckless started, uh, was kind of an, an addict to treatment finance operation. Um, and then it just became, we built Reckless, or I built Reckless. Uh, when I met my wife, Vanessa, is when it really took a turn for the better because I was running, I would have died easily. I mean, we, I was at that time, I'm working 50 hours a week. Uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm driving all over the country, getting me addicted, trying to get back to work in time. And my wife said, uh, you've got to, before she was my wife, but she said, you got to legitimize this thing. If you made it a nonprofit, people may want to help. And so she put all the paperwork in to get our nonprofit. I think that was 2016. We were married. We only dated for like three months and she just jumped on board with what was happening and, and blew my mind why she would ever do that. But we started kind of saying, you know, we, we just want to get the addicted into treatment. So we started by saying, what's the obstacle for treatment? If I could, if I could take away those obstacles, what would they be? And so. One would, oh, they don't have an entry fee again and they can't afford the entry fee, right? Well, then we quickly found out transportation's another issue. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have a way to get to a treatment center. The other one was they don't know where the beds are. A lot of them had waiting lists. And so we didn't want the waiting list to get in the way. So I began with my wife's help building networks of treatment centers and intake directors in other states, um, all for the sole purpose of just having an immediate bed availability when our phone rang. We started a hotline that has since uh, blown up. It gets about 100 and 
50 phone calls and messages every day. And so we, that's how it started. And now I think we're single-handedly probably keeping Greyhound bus lines in business because we're, <laughs> I think every day we're buying, I don't know who else is riding Greyhound buses except for <laughs> reckless people, but like we're, we're, we're tra- <laughs> like we're transporting them nonstop. It seems like I bought two yesterday. We just went and got a guy and got him into treatment. So now we're doing about five, six placements a day on average, men and women. Um, and it's all about you tell me what your obstacle is when they call in and we're going to overcome that. So, if, you know, well, I can't I don't have health insurance. It's like, you know what, man, it's not going to cost you a dime. Well, I don't have you know a way to get there, brother. We're going to transport you. I don't even have food, brother. I'll get you some food. Where are you? So when you take those obstacles away, you quickly find out the addicts that truly want help for their addiction and the ones that are just playing or, or maybe are just trying to, to satisfy someone, you know, a wife or a, a, a husband or a boyfriend or a mom in their life. And the ones that want help, we, we always tell them, I'm, I'll, I'll move heaven and earth to get you into treatment. Uh, if that's truly what you want. Uh, since Reckless's inception, we've not had to turn down a, an addict simply because we could not afford to pay for their treatment. Um, by the grace of God, we've helped a little over, it's, I think it's like almost 7,000 now. Um, and we've never turned turned one down. So the, the clothing company was huge. Vanessa, my wife, V, I call her V, she I came home one day and I, I said, we were, I mean, we, there, the, the problem was so gigantic. I think Craig and Abby, you guys can understand, like the problem of the addicted in America is, is it's nuts. I mean, like if you had a billion dollars, you could, you could roll through it really quickly. So we had some churches that, that would send us like a hundred bucks a month or whatever, but these, these addiction fees, these entry fees, are like a thousand dollars. And so we quickly knew we were going to have to have more money. So I came home one day and told my wife I was going to start an apparel company and print our own shirts out of our basement. We're living in this tiny house, and I remember my wife said, "What do you what What do we know about printing T-shirts?" <laughs> and the <laughs> the statement I made to her was, "I was like, it's 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 the easiest thing ever." And she said, "Have you ever printed a T-shirt?" <laughs> and I said, "I said no, but this guy I went to high school with is like an idiot, and he does it for like a living." And I was like, "We can if he can do it." I was like, we can we can do it. So over the years, reckless reckless apparel has turned into you know between three and. Three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year, and all of that. None of that goes to overhead. All of that goes to to getting the addicted into treatment. And so, it's it's just been about you show me the obstacles and getting the addicts into treatment, and we'll get them there. I think, you know, getting back to the question at hand was was what started. I was an addict. I, I I've been there. I understand the hopelessness and the desperation. And so when I do these interventions or when I talk to these people on the phone, families, and they don't know which way to turn. Um, I. I help the families as well, man. And I'm just trying to take away every obstacle that addict has, every objection that addict has. Now, at the end of the day, if they don't want help, there's nobody in the world that can help them. But if they do want help, um, I didn't think it was right that somebody could be turned away that truly wanted help for their addiction simply because they didn't have the money to pay for, for treatment. That sounded backwards to me. So that's that's what started Reckless was my own experience in, in knowing these gigantic holes that existed in the system. I mean, treatment's expensive at the time. I remembered parents taking out second and third mortgages on their home to send their kid to like a $30,000 program. Yeah. And I mean, it was just craziness. It was madness. So I, I started, you know, with my autism, I started cross-referencing programs that work. And now we've kind of built our own rehab here in Salina and we have, we have like a 90% success rate. So we're, we're kind of now emerged as, as the leaders in our industry, but it's not always been that way. It's been a lot of trial and error and, and it's been a lot of, I think, the first person through the door always gets kicked in the teeth, you know, like the first person that's trying to do something that's never been done. And so we've, we've had to kind of, you know, evaluate those things, but 
that's where reckless came from. We were born from that chaos. And so now we, we continually come up with, with come against new objections every day. And we're just trying to single-handedly knock those down one by one and get the addicted into treatment. Hey folks, Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors have no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in-depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. Well, I tell you what, what was so striking when I was talking to my mom and she was telling me about y'all's group and what y'all do is the fact that y'all will go to these people and help them. Like y'all, that that's a game changer to me because TJ wasn't listening to us. He didn't want to hear what we had to say. But if you had somebody that was kind of going through or had been through it, been through the wars with addiction. And I, in, our, in our episode of when we did we did that episode with T, about TJ, I, I remember I, and I mentioned it there because when I was back home after he passed away, I, I, one of my best friends had me over for dinner, him and his wife. And my he, he is a recovering addict as well. And he's been sober for, I don't know. 18, 19 years, man, we used to do a lot of stupid things when we were young. I've known him since I was 18, 19 years old, and I've seen him do a lot of stupid things. I, I wouldn't like go off that ledge because I was scared to death. I'm thankful that I was scared of it, but he, he, I, I told him, I said, I don't think that TJ knew that he had a problem. And he said, he said, there's not a doubt in my mind that TJ knew he had a problem, but he had to come to a moment of clarity. And I didn't understand what that the, the folks that, that that talked to me or, or had on the show to talk about that, they understood what he meant by that because I got to the point with TJ where I was just going to stop talking to him about it because when I moved to Memphis, I wasn't seeing him like I used to, and I didn't want to fight with him continuously. I knew he, we knew he was lying to us about it because I would pick him up and I could smell it on him, you know, but. I just didn't want to fight with him anymore about it because he wasn't listening to Big Brother. He wasn't listening to his Big Brother. I was just being a bully, I think. And so I just, I just stopped. And and sometimes I regret that. Well, you're being, yeah. Well, you're being perceived that way. There's no, man. I, this I get this question all the time. There's no wrong way to love somebody. There's no. You, you weren't an addict. You didn't struggle with those things. You didn't know what he was going through. I tell this to every single person in the world that I speak to about this. Pain, um, I don't, it's relevant to whoever's feeling it. And I, I know that, okay, like, like, like my body, I, um, I've got metal all the way through me. When the, when the weather's cold, it's miserable on me and I'm, I'm hurting. And so my wife has developed as sweet as she is. I, I, if you guys don't know, you don't know V, but I live with the most tolerant creature that God has ever made. I promise <laughs> you, she's just an amazing, patient human being. But one of the things she's, we've had, we have three children, three small children. And so she, I think, she, so Jack is three, Ezra is one, and Charlie is newborn. So my, my two boys and my girls are newborn. And so she's had three children, just bam, bam, bam. 
and her body, one of the things that, that she told me she's having, she's had all by emergency C-section. And so she said that her body, her nerves were hurting, but she's like, and I don't know if most women have, you'll probably tell her like this. She didn't even want to talk about what pain she was feeling ever. If she had a migraine or, I mean, she's had some serious medical conditions, but she never wanted to tell me about them because of how much pain I was in. Mm-hmm. So she'd always be like, well, I don't want to talk about it because you're in so much pain. That's the, that's such a ridiculous, like, and I know that it's, it comes from a good place. Like you and your brother, it comes from a good spot, but what pain is relevant, which means Vanessa never has to feel my pain and I never have to feel Vanessa's. So it, the fact that I'm in pain, does that make Vanessa's pain less? Absolutely not. I mean, that, that's crazy to even think that way. It's almost like, I mean, it's, it's the argument, does chocolate taste better because broccoli exists and we have to eat it at times? I mean, like, that's, that's stupid. You know what I mean? So what people, what people will do is, I mean, they will listen to us because we, we've been there, but it's just because I can look at them and call them on their BS and call them when they're trying to skirt the issue. And one of the things that, that I think Make Reckless Successful is, so I've got a nickname um, they, they call me the grim reaper or the angel of death. And it's a terrible nickname, um, <laughs> in so many ways, but I was given that by a SWAT team member in, in, in Tulsa, I think. But what, what he was saying was there was, so, so if you don't know, I mean, nothing is a felony. It seems like now and drugs are being legalized like every day and, and really cops get tired of arresting people for the same drugs that they get kicked out with a fine 10 hours later. Right. So it just becomes this process. And the cops started in our hometown, the cops started calling us instead of arresting us, saying, look, if you want help for your addiction, I'll give you a chance to call Reckless. If not, I'm going to take you to jail. And so what happened was I would go meet with these guys and this cop, it was about the fifth, sixth guy I met with. The the addict I was talking with was not listening. He was just kind of blowing me off. And this cop, the SWAT team officer, he grabbed this addict and he said, listen, son, you're 26 years old. I need you to listen to this guy. He said, because I don't know who he is. He's talking about me. And he said, no offense. I don't care who he is. He said, but here's what I know. He said, when we call him and he shows up, he talks to to addicts. He said, either they go with him to treatment or we find them dead within a week. Mm. Overdose, uh, things like that. And he said, this dude is the stone cold angel of death, man. He said, for all we know, he's a grim reaper. He said, (laughs) I think he's the last bit of grace anybody ever gets to see. And what he's getting at is very important because nobody calls reckless the first time they catch a a kid smoking weed behind the corner. You know what I mean? Or like, you don't, we're the last chance crew. When you don't know what else to do, when you're just at the end of your rope, that's, that's who calls reckless. Those people, when, when, when they broke in and stole everything from your grandma's house, when they're stealing pills from your, you know, your, your grandma's neck surgery, stuff like that. That's when you just get to the end of your rope and call reckless. So one of the things I share with everybody is when I'm talking to the addict, I don't have a deck of cards that I pull from and just have all these great sayings that you guys don't have. I just have the experience of being there and I have the honesty to look that person in the face and say, look, man, listen to what I'm telling you, because this is probably the last conversation I'll ever get to have with you. Either, either you will understand you have a problem and you'll go with me to treatment Mm -hmm. or I'll bury you. Um, you know, your family will shortly after, because that is, that's such a, we, we quit going to funerals at reckless because that's all we would do. I mean, like, and I think that's the hard part of what I do because everyone looks at Reckless and they see we have this 90% success rate with the addicts that we work with and we, we place 7,000 guys and girls in treatment. What they don't see is for every person that says yes to go to treatment, nine people or eight people at least say no. And, and the hard part for me is I see the eight people as clearly as I see the one that says yes. I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you, that, you know, I, I talk to yeah. those families too. And so I don't, I don't have a, a magic ball. I don't, I don't, I'm not. I'm not a gifted orator. I'm not, I'm nothing like that. I'm really not. I just have this, this understanding that 
uh, I have a beautiful family to go home to, but the only way I'm going to be able to close my eyes and sleep at night is if I know I left nothing on the table and I told you the truth um, about your addiction and about how bad you need help. Now, it, that's caused people to punch me in the face or that's caused an addict to, you know, hit me over the head with a beer bottle or to, you know, the truth sucks and it hurts really, really bad. But that's the only chance they have of recovering is somebody being upfront and honest with them and saying, look, man, this is what we're going to do. And, and, and I encourage you to, to, to be a part of this. If not, you're probably going to die. I mean, I just show up with statistics. That's all I do. And sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. So like the case with your brother, man, there's nothing, there's nothing you did wrong. There's nothing you should have done. Um, I, I, I just, and I can tell you this, I know I'm taking a minute, but I can tell you this because I just had this conversation with someone not too long ago. He, he, he didn't think his son needed to go to treatment. And I, his son's 30 years old. And I said, man, your son needs to be in treatment. I'm telling you, he's a stone cold heroin addict. His dad said, well, I think, you know, I know he's on heroin, but I think he's going to be okay. And I shared with him, I said, I said, brother, listen, listen to these statistics. I said, if he, if he tries to beat this on his own, there's a 97% chance he will fail. I said, there's less than a 4% chance he's going to make it to being sober. And his, his dad looked me dead in the eyes and said, well, maybe my son's one of the 3%. Oh, wow. wow. And I said, I, I said, brother, this is what emotions do. This is why, Abby, we're, we're, we, we need to be thankful we don't process them the same as other people. Yeah. Because I said, I just told you there's a 97% chance that there was failure. I said, so let me pull out all the stops. Failure means death when you're dealing with the, with the addicted. That's what it means. And I said, and anyway, the, the kid ends up, the dad didn't make him go to treatment. He paid for his hotel room and the kid overdosed in the hotel room his dad bought for him. He died. And one of the things I'll tell his dad, and I'll tell you the same thing, Craig, and your family, I hope they're listening to this, is his dad called me bawling and said that he had died, um, just ripped my heart out, and he said, it's my fault. He said, I didn't listen to you, and I should have. He said, this kid dying, used his name, and I won't use it, I don't want to blast the family, but he said, that's all on me, I did this. And I said, brother, you and I have different opinions about the way we treat the addiction. I said, but your son died because of your son, and that had nothing to do with you. Yeah. I said, that was a conscious decision made by him that resulted in his death. He's 30 years old. That is not your fault. I said, do, do I think that you should have bought him a hotel room? Obviously not, and I told you that. But at the end of the day, we're all free moral agents that decide our life. And there's, and I know you wrestle with this, Craig, so I'm, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm just talking about this podcast for you, but in your head, man, you've got to get past that there was something you didn't do or something that you could have done or something that you did that drove him to this or or that he experienced some pain that you didn't experience. It, none of that's true. Um, I can tell you from being addicted and being on the verge of death a million times in my life, I can tell you honestly, the addicted, we our days are strung together by, by I mean, by the thinnest of, of strands. And we have never learned to deal with our emotions the way we should. We have huge highs and very low lows. And sometimes, I mean, we are one memory away from, from dropping off. We're one smell, we're one phone call, we're one conversation. There's so much guilt in our lives that if we don't learn how to process that guilt, uh, when it comes up, you know, it, it, I mean, I can tell you my family, they loved me no matter what, but I was so guilt ridden and shame that I hid from them. And I did these things without their knowledge. And then I lied to them. I mean, that's guilt that drives that. And, and really, there's nothing your brother, and you know this, there's nothing your brother could have said to you that would have made you look at your brother any differently. It wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered if he just said, look, I'm, I'm drinking every day of my life. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And you would have said, Craig, I love you. Let's get you some help. The conversation would have been the exact same. He chose to internalize those things and not share that with you. And unfortunately, that's what happens. I mean, it's, and, I, and I know I'm talking about very cavalier, but 
I do this so much every day that I don't want you carrying that guilt around. And I don't want that to result in, in something for you because man, you, you were, you were the brother you were to him and, 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 and he died and had nothing to do with you, man. And I'm just, I'm just being as real as I can be. I really appreciate that. And, um, I want Abby to jump here in a second, and I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> um, <laughs> Allergies, man. They're bad. Really, yeah, it's they're terrible right now. My eyes are watered up right now. It, but there's a couple things, and then I want Abby to jump in. I remember when we, when I was talking about doing that episode about TJ, and we recorded it, but I was hesitant about releasing it because I didn't know, I didn't know how it'd be received and. I asked our producer and I, t- I told her when she did the editing on it and stuff. And I said, how was it? She goes, it was great. She goes, you were, it was just so honest. She goes, and, and she can bleep this out. But she said, this shit touches every family in some aspect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think people understand that because I promise anybody that's listening to this, you know somebody. Oh yeah. In your life, whether it's a friend or family that is is struggling with this. And she was right. And because but I was afraid to, to release it. I don't know if, if if afraid is the right word to use, but hesitant for sure. No, I I think that's that's healthy. Very hesitant because it was well, I was putting myself out there. I was putting my brother's life out there. Yeah, it's vulnerable. Yeah, it was very vulnerable. Yeah, that's 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 the word right there. <laughs> it is. And so Craig, that doesn't that doesn't get any easier. Even like me, I've been doing it it's like eight years now. Um and I can tell you this absolute certainty and, and it's so crazy to me because when you look I was so scared of sharing with people that I was a heroin addict and I was on the needle and I was because in our society, a needle, an IV drug user, we rank right there with sex offenders. I mean, like we are we are despised and rejected. I mean, we, we're, we're, the communities are grossed out by us. And I thought, God, I'm never going to be able to like share this with people. And like, I, nobody even wants to hear from me. But I found that the, the more real I would be and the more vulnerable and then put myself out there, that caused more and more people to reach out to me and more and more people to get help. And it was like, it hadn't, to me, it's, it's backwards because I would think like, man, I don't, I want to internalize all this. I don't, I don't really feel like sharing any of this. And the more I shared those things, like the, the more people beat down Reckless's door to get help. And so then I got to a point where even though I was really uncomfortable and I hated doing it, I would just do it. I would just be like, man, I, I got to do it. So I, I, I totally understand what you're saying about being hesitant. But, man, you, you, that's why people will continue to be drawn to your show and your podcast is because there, there's not a lot of, of real being offered out there right now. And, and people recognize it and they jump all over it. Well, I sound like an idiot behind the microphone. Thank goodness for our producer. She can clean some <laughs> of that stuff up. <laughs> What? No, be real. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. You know, and it's not to pat ourselves on the back. You know, Abby's a she's been with us since the very beginning. She's seen this. She's she's watched this go. And I remember there was a time I remember texting her. We're we're in a, we're in a, a group chat with another buddy, uh, Chris Polk, and I, I told him I said, "Y'all ever get sick of me talking about this?" Because I felt like I was bothering people with this. And Abby's like, I'd be worried if you did stop talking about it. Hey, Abby's the real deal. That's like, that's a perfect response. Yeah, absolutely. Abby, Abby's got it going on. She's, she's always, <laughs> I, she, she hates this, but I tell her all the time, she's the smartest person I know. I don't know what that says about my other friends, but. <laughs> well, she, so it sounds like she's just, she's just all in as a friend. I mean, like that's what love is right there. Like, 
Oh yeah, and she'll tell she'll tell me pretty quick whenever I'm doing something stupid. She does she does not hesitate. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to be successful, this is, I'm just going to hit you with this: surround yourself with people that are never impressed by you. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's just that's, there. You go. That's my secret yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Abby fits that bill very quickly. Yeah, I, it's not like I, I'll do a panel or a podcast or I'll do you know whatever. And, it's not like I'll, I'll speak to a crowd of people or I'll design a really cool shirt. It's not like I come home and my wife is just blown away by me. or, or <laughs> <laughs> that, does, that does not happen. <laughs> and that's huge, for, especially for men. We have to keep our ego in check. Oh, yeah. So. yeah. Just don't beat us down. That's all we're asking. <laughs> <laughs> hey, folks. Craig here again. As you know, this project is completely self-funded by me, and all profits go straight to charities here in Memphis. If you have a blog, a podcast, or a product that you would like to advertise on the Bad Roman Podcast, visit thebadroman.com slash ads. I'm so happy how this project has grown, and thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the conversation. I guess we're kind of coming from the same perspective of you are able to talk to addicts because you've been there, and we're able to call Christians on their crap because we've been there too. It's like we <laughs> we know exactly what, what it's like and what you're thinking, so we can point it out. But I think when we, we do try to get back to the to the message of Jesus and, and kind of um, take all that stuff away from it, like everybody has their part to play in the body of Christ. And what you're doing, I think, is exactly what people should be doing because it, it follows, follows Jesus's example of so much of what he did was healing people. And I think going to them and giving them a way out, because like you said, there there is so much shame around it, not even just for the addict, but for their families. And I think yeah. even when people pass away, their families are still stuck with that shame. Like we did something to cause this or it's on us somehow. And That's the human condition. That's the brain. Right. Yeah. Being really transparent and and just taking that shame away and and offering people some hope because I think people don't want to talk about it and because nobody talks about it nobody knows any way out of it or or really how many other people are struggling or have um, members of their family struggling so I think yeah just offering people that hope um, is huge. Yeah, and th- and it's probably like there's so much misinformation about it and there's so many voices out there screaming like. Recovery, and it's the same in your guys', and I'll connect it here in a minute, but the recovery is turned into a multi-billion dollar a year business. I mean, right. you can either, there's no governing body for it, really. You can set up a rehab, and you can, like, there's a rehab in our hometown here, and it's just, I worked with them a little bit at the beginning, and then they just strayed so far from helping the addicted and just went to filling their pockets. And what they'll do is, and this is completely legal, which is what makes me sick, but what they'll do is they'll bring them in. Um, from like, straight from jail because they don't want to catch a jail sentence or whatever, and they'll call themselves a rehab. And so they'll get these guys, they'll get them a job, and then they'll, they'll take their paycheck. So every bit of their paycheck, they'll, they'll work $15 an hour. They'll take that paycheck, and then after they work 40, 50 hours a week, after six months, they give them 20 bucks a week. If they graduate after a year, they let them keep the $15 an hour job, but they take all, they've taken all their money for a year. Oh, wow. And they, they, they call themselves a Christian program. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like one of the things that, that we have the biggest problem with is jumping out there and, and we don't, we don't, we don't go and like, ha- we don't, we don't haggle these guys or we don't, we don't, we don't go and say, oh, these, they're terrible. We don't, we don't trash talk them just simply by being the representative of Christ in the world. 
you start to make these enemies mm. with these programs that are also claiming to represent Christ. And then what people do is they say, wait a minute, Jordan, your program, your program saves money for the guys. Um, your program helps them. You know, you don't take any money. You, you pay the addicted entry fees. You don't, you don't charge them a dime. Um, and what that does is that begins to emerge as the, the true gospel witness that you see in scripture. And then people start seeing, well, well wait a minute, if they're doing that, yeah. then people are really not going to like us. So then they start to hate us because of what, and it's, it's almost the same thing. And I, and I can, I can tell you this for a fact, like what you guys do, trying to draw a line between patriotism and evangelicalism in America is a suicide mission. <laughs> and I, I can only, I'm, I can, and I can tell you this because it's made me sick. I've tackled this many, many times, but. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said people have been coming to God from the beginning of time, trying to get them on, on whatever side they're on to push their agenda. Now that's, that's, that's especially true in political parties. You know, you see the Republicans do it, you see the Democrats doing it. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis said that stood out is he said, they don't understand God because he will fly no man's flag. You don't have this ability to say, look at us. God is a Republican. Look at us. God is a Democrat. I can firmly tell you that if you read scripture, God doesn't give a crap about either one of those things. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there are platforms that, that support the gospel. That, that I'm, not, I'm not arguing that. What I'm saying is you don't we, – we identify – if you're a Christian, you identify as a citizen of another country. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe in a gospel that, that crosses cultural lines. And like, <laughs> this guy gets it. Well, it's very it's, – yeah. This guy understands what we're talking about because what you just said about the flag – I don't know if you've if you've ever done any reading of the early church. Oh, that's yeah. something I've been infatuated with since we started this. But if you're familiar with Tertullian, he had he has a quote. It's great. He says, "Shall we fly a flag? It's a rival to Christ." Absolutely. And that ought to punch every every status Christian right in the mouth. And that's where that's where it, so that's where the hatred comes in because I've spoken on this several times publicly. And one of the things that I said during the election, um, and I almost got killed for it. I feel like, but one of the things that I said was I, I made the point that it was very scary because for the first time in my life that I can remember since I started voting, neither candidate openly feared God. And that's all I said. I said, that's a scary thing whenever we don't have a candidate that is that is even remotely fearing God. I mean, and I think that was especially true in that election. And I, at that point, I was automatically labeled, um, oh, well, you, you know, you, you're against Trump. <laughs> and I said, focus very closely on what I just said. Like I said, neither candidate fears, neither candidate fears God is what I said. <laughs> At that point, oh, I was called a Hillary lover. And like all these Republicans were like hating me. <laughs> and then they came after me and I'm a registered Republican. So then I'm like, well, hang on a minute, man. Like it was like, this is like a strange, you know, I mean, like it was very, it was very strange that, that in this part of the country, in this American Christianity Bible Belt, you don't fight good versus evil. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's like, I think it's Spurgeon that it's, True discernment is not choosing between right and wrong. It's choosing between wrong and almost or right and almost right. And that's that's honestly how I feel about discernment. Like with this, you know. And I, <laughs> you guys are. I just feel the more I talk, the more sorry I feel for you guys because you're in such a volatile <laughs> state. Like you guys are. Like I mean, you you talk about tackling an issue nobody wants to tackle, but it needs to be done. And at the end of the day, our allegiance is to Christ. I, you, it, I, and I think you guys are too. You'd be hard pressed to find anyone more patriotic than me. I love America, but I'm honest about where we are as a country. And man, you know, that's, I even say, I, it's so funny. So one of the guys I was eating breakfast with one time, he's a staunch Republican. 
he said he couldn't understand why Trump wasn't getting more of the women vote. <laughs> <laughs> and all I did was I just stopped. Oh, I didn't, I didn't like harass him. I just said, <laughs> you really can't. Un- are you being, I mean, like, I get it. I get why women won't vote for him. And I said, I'm not. <laughs> and they said, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you're supporting Hillary. I said, what the crap are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> all I said was, I understand why women are hesitant to vote for him. That's all I said. Oh like, my so, God. Anyway, that's my, yeah. See, that's so funny too, because when he, w- when he was leading up to his nomination, and that's when I got off the bandwagon, the Republican bandwagon. I was like, I can't do this. I was so upset with how Christians were latching onto this guy and the things he was saying. But I was also ignoring the fact that I was going to support Ted Cruz because he would say things like, we got to make the sand glow. <laughs> That's how screwed up my head was. <laughs> but I was so upset about how, what he was saying. That's really what spurred the project is because Craig's frustration with Donald Trump. And then when you, <laughs> we're, we're getting off, we're, we're, get, we're getting on a whole different topic here, but when you, when you, when you, when you Really look at how Christians latch onto him. And you said something a while ago. You said, neither candidate fears God. I will say this. If either one of them feared God, they wouldn't be running to rule over somebody else. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. And it's a very, and not to, and I, and I don't, I mean, I know, I will tell you this. We, we operate, as reckless, we operate so closely with the state without ever jumping on board with them. And you, as Christians, you have to do that. I, I'm... A guy named Todd Sloggett was my mentor in this, and we are a health and human services 501c3 nonprofit. We are non-religious. Now, I did that uh, specifically because if you are religious, then you shut down your access to the ones that are in jail because it's separation of church and state, and the state believes that they can't um, court order someone to a Christian program in a lot of the states we worked in. And so mm-hmm. I, now my company is ran on the principles of the gospel. And every single addict I've ever placed into treatment has only been placed in faith-based treatment programs. They've never been placed in one that wasn't. Um, now, it's because of the success rate that are involved in those, and obviously because of the way I feel about the gospel myself, and, and obviously we preach it everywhere. But what I'm saying is the only reason we're allowed to do that is because we don't take money from the state of Oklahoma. If we did, we would not be allowed to do that. So we've had, we've had several times where the state or the federal government has come up against us and said, You've got to change your 501c3 to religious because you obviously believe in the teachings of the Bible and you're obviously, you know, going that route. And if we were, that's what got the Salvation Army in trouble. It's got the Red Cross in trouble. Um, if you take money from the state of Oklahoma or, or, or the federal government, then you would, you, you've got to walk a line and you can't be exclusive with the gospel. Well, we just raised our own money and that's how, that's how we've gotten around it. But it's, it's harder to do that. But guys, that's what we're called to do. We're called to be in the world, not of the world. Right. I mean, like we're called to stand. If it was easy, everybody would do it. That's exactly right. We we live and die on the hill of the gospel. Outside of that, there's really nothing that I would, you know what I mean? Like I'm not I'm not gonna. And the and the, the state money is so easy to get. You can get grants. You can get. It's so easy to get that most churches do it, mm-hmm. and then they wonder why the gospel is compromised or their Christianity is compromised in their message. It's because it has to be, or you're going to shut off your funding. <laughs> that's exactly, that's all it is. Yeah, you get hooked on that funding and it you, people don't realize how much it, it's kind of insidious, how it changes the way you view things and the decisions you make and your integrity. I think that's really awesome that you guys are able to not take money from the state and kind of walk that line, but at the same time, work with them to get people out of the system. 
that's the only thing that saves us, Abby, is that we do it with our own money. So, like, I mean, it's we've I've had this conversation several times where someone's come to me and, you know, it was, I'll tell you this story about it, and this is absolute craziness, but the IRS kind of, they fought back on us at the beginning about our, about our 501c3. And we were using the success rate. We're look at our success rate. We're having like, why would you even mess with us? Well, then they finally um, ruled that we could, they, we could keep our health and human services 501c3, which that was important to me because it's the sick that need a doctor. It's not the healthy. So I, I didn't want the jail shut off to me or the mental institution shut off to me. I, I wanted those areas. Um, they finally came back and said, I think the official ruling was you can keep your 51 C three, but you you can't have state or federal funding, and you have to you have to pay back what you've taken from state and federal funding. And I was really I remember reading the letter and telling my wife I was really bummed out until I realized we don't have any state or federal funding. So it's kind of a don't threaten me with a good time scenario. <laughs> I don't really. So I was like it. We won, but it kind of felt they wrote it like we lost. It was really weird. Yeah. Like reading the letter. Like it was like, okay, well, I guess we'll continue doing what we're doing. (laughs) I applaud anybody trying to walk that line. There's something on your website. I can't find it for some reason now, but there was something that I read when I was, I think it had something to do with y'all's apparel. You mentioned y'all print your own t-shirts and stuff. Listen, I've been printing for over 25 years. You would think that I would know how to print a (laughs) t-shirt. I have no idea. It's incredibly hard. It's so hard, man. I have so much respect for people that do it. Like, Oh my gosh. I print labels. I used to print newspapers. I can print, I can print. I know how to do that. So I've been doing it for so long, but printing a t-shirt, I couldn't imagine. So we outsource our, our apparel. To Teespring. Yeah, so <laughs> she was very smart. I, our producer, she designs all this stuff for us. But what I what, what one thing I read on your website, and I, I thought that was so cool. It was something about you can put a cross on a pair of shoes, but can you build a pair of shoes for somebody else? And I'm paraphrasing, obviously, because I can't find it. It was such a great quote. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's been it's been attributed to Martin. So I, I, I man, I'm such a freak. I have to read the, I don't know. Uh, Abby, I don't know what kind of autism, what it does to you, but I have to read about 400, 350, 400 pages a day. I have to. I get really, really manic and I get um, completely disagreeable. And my wife encourages me. She keeps me well stocked in literature. But I was when I was starting Reckless, I was reading a lot of Martin Luther because the Reformation, I drew so many comparisons to what he did in the Reformation to what we were trying to do. And I know that's me overly exaggerating, but I look at him and one of the things that it's been, it's been attributed to Luther is he said, if, if, if you're a Christian and you're a cobbler or a shoemaker, um, you don't put a cross. I know you said, if you want to honor God with your work, you don't put a cross on every pair of shoes you make. Just make a really good pair of shoes. There you go. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. And to me, man, that solidified everything the church is doing now and, and everything that's wrong with, mm-hmm. with Christians in America. Because I, rem- I do design. I, I design logos. And I designed a logo for a, for a company. It was a security company. And, he, and they wanted a fish, the Christian fish, in the logo. <laughs> and I, I, I immediately, in my mind, that's a huge thing here. I don't know if that's going on in Memphis still, but in Oklahoma and Texas, it's like everywhere. The Christian fish is like in every logo. Right. And I said, I mean, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You know, all this money goes to Reckless anyway. So I said, can I just ask why? He goes, what do you mean? Why, why put a fish in it? I said, yeah, to what end? Right. Like, what are you hoping to accomplish? He said, I want everyone who looks at our sign to know we're Christian. I said, brother, I'm not trying to be rude, but why don't we treat them with respect and honor and dignity? And let's see if they can figure that out by themselves. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like maybe, like, 
because for so long it's it's an appearance of Christianity, but it's not Christianity. Yes, I mean it's just not. I mean, you, I mean you drive around. I don't know if it's like this in Memphis, but you drive around in Oklahoma. No matter what town I go into, there's a hundred churches in in every square block, and yet the city's burning to the ground around it in addiction. Yeah, and it's like, hang on a minute, these two things don't they can't coexist. <laughs> if Christ is if Christ is present, there is freedom. I think people don't realize too that marketing, maybe they do, I don't know, but marketing your business as a Christian business is more, it comes across more as an exclusionary tactic than like, oh, come to us because we're going to be so great. It's more like, yeah, stay away if you don't <laughs> share our beliefs. See, I think so too. I mean, I, it, that's always horrified me when they, you see the Jesus fish and something. I'm like, what were we hoping to accomplish with that? Like, I just don't, I don't. Right. And I, and I can tell you what we're losing in this country, and you guys know this, but like men that just stand for the gospel and women that just stand for the gospel and their lives are 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 noted by it because of the way they act. Like I, I pray to God. Right. No one nobody looks at reckless and says, Look what look what Jordan did so more people could know about him. Surely they would know that we've been doing this for eight years now. Um, it's gotta be about Christ and it's gotta be about helping people or what what benefit are we getting from it? Right. I'm getting, yeah. I'm, a, I'm aging twice as fast. <laughs> that's so. <laughs> that's so perfect because, and we say this quite a bit too. Live a life that gets people asking you questions of why you're living that way. Don't go yeah. out there like I've got a tattoo on my on my arm. It's the Jesus fish, but it's got the anarchy symbol in the middle. Of it. <laughs> All right, that's something that Christian anarchists use. Is is with the anarchy sign right in the middle of the Jesus fish. A Christian anarchist. And I. <laughs> Yeah, that's what we are. I mean, it's, it's like, that's such a that's such a sh- it, to me because it's funny because you have to you have to state that now. Whenever you used to, if you said Christian, you were automatically you were automatically an anarchist. Yes, <laughs> like, that's what I yes. And I've, I've told people all the time. I get so sick of talking to uh, secular anarchists. <laughs> where he's like, no kings, no masters. I'm like, hang on a second. If I can't have my king Jesus, then you can keep your anarchy. And you ought to be able to say Christian, yeah. And as people understand that you're not embedded with the state, but it's that's not the case these days. No, in fact, it's it's almost that's okay. Like we get labeled as rebellious because we're. I mean, I I don't know if you guys. I'm I've got tattoos on my hands, and I'm I'm just I'm inked up or whatever. And we get called rebellious because we 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 go to these places and we drag these addicts out of them um, because we're not the norm, I guess. And that offends the living crap out of me because. We we are the furthest thing from rebellious. If, if you've ever met any of the Reckless Saints, no one has more respect for authority than we do. Yeah. No one has more respect for – I mean, if you're a true Christian, you live a life of submission. Not of It's not rebellion in any way, shape, yeah. or form. It looks like rebellion. Right. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you follow Tim Kennedy. Like, if you follow Tim Kennedy, but one of the things he just posted, and, and he's, he's become like a really good friend of mine, but one of the things he posted, and it cracked me up because it was so dead on. He's, uh, I'm going to pull it up real quick on my phone because I, I, it just blew me away. He said, Americans are rebels. Be a rebel again. Turn off your TV. Get married. Stay married. Start a family. Be present for that family. Think for yourself. Teach your kids to think for themselves. Buy land and love your neighbor, even the ones you disagree with. <laughs> and it, the way he framed that as rebellion. We won't have like, none of that. It's like, <laughs> it's like it's now rebellion to live basic Christian values. That's rebellious. So Christian anarchy, that got me when you said that. <laughs> like, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> well, I'm going to take that as you have not researched our, our, our website. 
No, I knew. I, I love it. No, I looked up the, the Roman Bad Roman. So I looked it up and I, I know that you guys are all about drawing that line. That's why I agreed to do this. When they when the team told me what was going on, I immediately, you know, I get everything printed out. They, they know I don't like going online. So they print out these documents for me. And that first statement that's on your guys' website, uh, that's what got me. Like, that, there it is. If you want to know the truth, like at that point, I was all in. Like, if, if Well, that's really cool. Yeah. I understand how hard it is. And you've got to be doing it because you believe in it. Because, yes. man, you're going to get hit from every angle. You're going to get hit yeah. from – I mean, uh, brother, the Baptists probably hate you guys. And it's like – Oh, you have no <laughs> idea. Listen, I came from that that bunch of Southern Baptists. And I can't – Yeah. I can walk out my front door and throw a rock and hit a Baptist church around here. And I refuse to set foot in one anymore. I am a Baptist, but I will tell you this. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Baptist church around here. Like there's like, I mean, like there are a million and one of them. You know what I mean? But all of them. Well, I mentioned, I, I mentioned something to Abby one time. I was like, <laughs> she got me. Cause I, there's this, there's this little Amish community out about 20 miles from where I live. And I was, went, to, I went out there to their little store there and I was coming back and there's a little Southern Baptist church on the side and they got their bands and stuff. And I told Abby, I was like, you know what? I, I want to go. I want to go back to church. I want to meet with some of these folks and talk to them. I reached out to the pastor. I talked to him on the phone and stuff. <laughs> and that's where I came from was a Southern Baptist. And Abby said, I wouldn't get within 10 feet of a Baptist church. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I get it. That makes me sound so mean. <laughs> Abby, Abby sounds so sweet, but she, I, I tell her all the time that she's, uh, she's got this drive-by snark. Like she just says something and she just keeps going. Vanessa has you, the same. Yeah, she's that, like yeah. Jesus, and then you, then she makes you start thinking about things in your head, and she's you don't ever talk to her, you don't <laughs> talk to her for three or four days, but you're still thinking about what Abby said. And I, dude, I can tell you this from from experience. Like I, we've preached in Baptist churches. I, I attend a Baptist church now. I guess is what it is, but I can tell you, every one of them we go to, I have to constantly. There, none of them are united on the same things. The gospels uh, is not the thing that unites them. It's it's a it's a not, they don't, it's not even talked about. I grew up in a Baptist church. I could tell you what Baptists believe, but I couldn't tell you the critical elements of the gospel. And it creates like this kind of mentality of, hey, we will die for the Baptist church or we're Baptists and we love it. But you don't fall in love with Christ. You fall in love with a system of do's and don'ts and you fall in love with with the. Yes, yes. And you'd have to around here, you're completely ostracized if you're not one. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, I mean, I I know some of my brothers, a Baptist pastor. He's a great man of God. Like he's, he's my hero in a lot of ways. But I firmly understand what you guys are saying because I've been to some Baptist churches that that whenever I like one of them, I, I said, uh, he said, you're not one of those wanky Southern Baptists, are you? And he was a free will Baptist. And I was just so tired of all the denominations. I said, brother, I don't understand what any of y'all are. I said, I couldn't even research. I said, because you guys aren't united. You don't have a creed that unites you. I said, here's where I stand on the gospel. Do you agree with that or not? And his first words out of his mouth, he goes, yeah, yeah, I think I do. And I was like, well, okay then. <laughs> I'm tired of trying to figure out who you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Church has become such a system, especially in, in America. Prior to coronavirus stuff i was attending this non-denominational church but it was still just as messed up as what i was seeing sure in baptist churches and i was i caught myself and this is i haven't been to church since and people i get 
push back on that, but it's not because I don't want to go. The problem I was having is I was sitting in that pew and I was judging everybody. And that's not who I want to be. Really? Sure. You know what I mean? I don't want to be that guy sitting in the pew judge, judging people because, listen, you need to go check out the badroman.com. <laughs> I got some things to tell you. But you're not, they're not going to listen to I, – I, I hated that about me. So it's it's been easier to – now we do these Zoom calls on – we have a, a private discussion group. Well, it's not even – I guess it's a private group on, on Facebook. And we started doing these Zoom calls where we'll meet once a month just to talk, just to fellowship. To me, that's church. Okay. So, you know, Jesus said, where one or two are gathered, I am also there. Brother, it's about having a community. Yeah, it's about having a community of believers. That's that's what the church is. I, I, I can tell you this. I go to church. It's called Life Fellowship. I think it's bad. I need to check. I think it's pretty much Baptist. But what I can tell you is I was at a Mennonite church this morning. I have deep, deep brothers in the faith there. I've got... A guy in Georgia named Kevin Vickers, one of my closest friends, he is the pastor, get this, of a holiness Baptist church. I didn't even know the two things. I thought the ideas opposed one another, but apparently they don't. And <laughs> I, I'm t- I, it's, that is what's become the church to me. Now, I'm president of the church because, like what you said about judging, I'm prone to that. And so when I go into, it, when I go into church and I'm part of a body, it, it, that's me submitting. And it's me putting that down and saying, God, I'm here because I, you love God by loving the church. And I want to love your people. And so it gives me an opportunity to do that. I'm not good at it. Um, I still catch myself in pews, I think, getting mad about everything the church does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I, it's, my pastor knows this. My, we, we submitted just the other day. Was, I, can't, I can't even. It was like a budget. And the budget was X amount of dollars went to overhead and X amount of dollars went to missions. And in my head, and it's not a bad thing. They're, they're called to run a church, not me. So I, I don't even get into that. But in my head, I know reckless. I know like the fur. I'm trying to think. So it, I think, oh my gosh, I think we did like half a million dollars um, a couple of years ago. In in that's that's income we raised ourselves. I mean, less than ten percent of what we do comes from donations, and overhead was less than like forty grand, and the rest of it was just given back to the addicted. That's awesome. Now I'm not saying that's the model. I'm not saying that's what people should do. I'm not saying. But to me, we always are about let's trim the overhead and have more to reach people with. That's always. But it seems like churches are the exact opposite. They're like, well, let's get more money so we can hire more people. So now there are like 90 pastors on staff. Like I just met the other day. I met an addiction outreach pastor. I'm like, what the crap is that? (laughs) And he said, and he he said, well, I work with the addicted. He goes, you don't you don't have those in Oklahoma. I said, yeah, but we just call them pastors. You don't need a specialty pastor to work with the addicted. You just need a pastor. That was one thing that was also turned me off so much about churches is that non-denominational church I was talking about. They were they had a a, a a pastor that was brought in from Florida to help. And I'm using air quotes because we don't have video right now. <laughs> heal the church because they couldn't keep a pastor because people were leaving because there was a conflict. But the one, one thing he said, this is the last time I went to that church because, listen, I give my money to charity. I don't give it to a church anymore because he said something. He said something. He said, we need to get our budget up. We need to hit this goal so our new pastor can hit the floor running. I'm like, what are you talking about? Jesus said to help the the needy, those in need. Yeah. and Not the pastor so he can hit the floor running. It, it, It just irritated me so much and I was done. I was out. 
And this was all coming together at the same time with the Bad Roman Project starting and stuff. And I had a, all these things going on in my head. I was like, oh, I can't do this. Because I, like I said, I was sitting there in the pew judging everybody. Well, brother, so what God has given you, yeah, what God has given you is very real. I mean, like, and, and you and Abby, like, that's a real thing, what, you're, what you guys are doing. It just always has to be kind of like, we are reformers by nature, me and you and Abby. Like, that's, we are not afraid to walk against the status quo. Now, where I see this and what got me about churches, and I was in the same boat as you, I was really turned off by them. God was really, um, and I'll, I'll share the short story with you. I, I looked at it like the, the Catholics and the reformers, the reason Martin Luther buffed against it was it was clergy that was just, you're bringing all this money in. It's not going to the people, but it's going to hire more staff. And then it's going to pay for penance. And it's going to pay for these, these ridiculous things. And so if you look at America, what we lost was we lost the hurt and the broken. The church used to take care of them. In fact, if you look at scripture, God has ordained the church to take care of the, the widows, the orphans, the ones that are hurting. I mean, that's that's the job of the church. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a suggestion. It was not a suggestion. No. It was a commandment. <laughs> we gave that to the state because we didn't we didn't want to do it. Yeah. We would rather hire pastors. And so the state had to take it over. And so now the church like is griping about the state. And I'm going, you have no right because you literally you're not doing it. And so like in my head, this is where I was. Um, I got in my room one day and I'm praying and I said, God, you know, your church is so screwed up. And I said, this actually is how prideful and arrogant I was. Um, I said, I can't fix it. And, and I, I've never heard it more plainly. God speak to me. I've never heard it more plainly. It's not yours to fix. That's my bride. And she belongs to me. Yeah. And like, I've, I've kind of had a hands off fear of God approach <laughs> since that day. It's like, I will, I will, <laughs> I will call out the church. Uh, I'm kind of like you guys. Uh, it should be a Christian doing it. Yeah. You know, does that make sense? Like if, if, if a, a Christian, we should have transparent lifestyles. Like I called out teen challenge. They're partnering with the state. Some of them are, and I called them out and I got completely ostracized for it. And they said, well, you're a, you're a teen challenge graduate. Now you're going against them. I said, because you're stepping out of the original intention, it should be a teen challenge graduate saying it. Right. Like, I don't, it what it qualifies me because I did go through it. So instead of it pushing you away, let that, let that bring you closer to God, because I'm telling you, man, you guys have to be very much inside the church to, to reform it. You don't reform from the outside. I mean, it's, and, and that's your job. You guys are. Well, you say you, you use the word reform. All we're trying to do is get back to the basic teachings of Christ. That's reformation. The only. way it started. That is reformation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's maybe, yeah. maybe, but you know, that, that, that word can use, a, it carries a lot of connotations as well. Sure. Sure. But what we're trying to do is just get back to what Jesus said. Absolutely. What did that guy have to say? I think there is a reformation going on right now. I think I think you're right, Abby. We're seeing it a lot, especially with this, especially with this project. Right. And I think a lot of Christians are panicking about it because it does look like a lot of people leaving the church. But I think it's just a rethinking of what church really is and and what the values are that we want to have as Christians and what following Jesus looks like rather than kind of being part of this culture that I don't that that is really about like control and looking out for each other and being us versus them so I'm encouraged by it absolutely it is frustrating sometimes but but I I think things are changing I think there's definitely a move back to, to truth. Like that's, what's cool is that people are, 
they're no longer satisfied with 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 an agenda and with with biased based like information right or a shell like moving back toward authenticity absolutely yeah and i think that's the biggest thing that, that like with reckless and like what what like I, I love about you guys is that you have the spirit about you that you're all in and that that that's like that's missing from american society we used to be an all-in people and we used to not be afraid of failure like I, I can't, the church is so stinking afraid of failure right now. It makes me sick. They're, they're so scared to do anything because they don't want the, the blowback if they fail. Right. And I'm, here's me. I mean, we, I, I counsel so many nonprofits. I counsel so many, so many people wanting to start ministries. And one of the things I tell them is like, how, how comfortable are you with failure and how comfortable are you to look incredibly stupid? Yeah. Because like, if you're going to do anything worthwhile, that's, you're going to have to put yourself out there And the church. The church has turned into an institution, the American church that, that fears information. And that fears failure and that fears, and that is never, that's never good. No institution, that's just power and control. Like you guys, like you guys said, so I applaud what you're doing. I really do. Like I'm, I'm on board with it. Well, it's a, it's a question. I, it's a question I get quite a bit from folks is why are you doing this? Why are you putting yourself out there? And this is going to sound cliche or stupid or whatever, but I honestly, and I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart just because I love you. Yeah. Yeah. If, I mean, I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you the truth because I love you, not because of, you're not going to like a lot of what we say, but we're doing it when you when you do it from a place of love and instead of trying to do it from trying to fight with people about it, it's it changes everything. It changes everything. Yeah. And I think that's a fine line, too, because you'll hear the phrase speaking the truth in love a lot in the Christian community. And it's all <laughs> it's not necessarily they think it's in love, but it's not necessarily loving. And it's, so it's a fine line to walk of of actually figuring out a way to tell the truth and be loving versus I'm not open to listening to anyone else. I'm not open to. Well, that's exactly what Jordan's doing and the Reckless Saints of Nowhere is doing. And I, this is what I love so much about Reckless. And I love that name, man. I, I got to ask you where you got that. I don't want to keep you too long today. We've gone over an hour now. No, I tell you. So that, that just real quickly on Abby's point, that love part, that has to be your life. So that when you speak, your life is the love that backs up the truth that you just spoke. It's not right. it's not a manner of the way you deliver it. It's the fact that you have the lifestyle that proves you care. Because I've got I've got people in my life, like my brother, he can say things to me because I know he loves me. Yeah. He can speak the truth in love to me. Now someone else comes up to him, I'm gonna knock him out <laughs> because it's like, hey man, I don't know you. You know what I mean? Like you don't love me. Right. So that's all we have is is the reason I can talk to an addict is, hey man, I've got a lifestyle that supports what I'm saying to you that you know it's true. But so no, the reckless saints of nowhere, man. I'm from this little town, this little community in between Lake Hudson and, and Pryor. I'm called Boatman, Oklahoma. Um, Boatman, Oklahoma used to be a town, and then they came through and we they stripped our township. So they took like the zip code a long time ago and they took the post office and uh, they were like, you're not really a town or something. I don't know. And so, <laughs> it's a very, very poor community. The locals, we sit between Slime and Pryor and, and the locals started calling us nowhere because we weren't. Oh. Uh, prior school buses ran out there. The Salina police responded. Um, and it was kind of like this. It was kind of like they, they called it dog town, too, because people dumped their dogs there. And it was just this trailer park community that was real, real rough and sketchy and so i whenever i got graduated treatment i, I moved back there I, I i got a house there and i that's where reckless started and the reckless saints was something that 
Um, I, I, one of the things I noticed, the more, and you'll love this part of it. I don't, I mean, it's just, it's not just for this podcast this is the truth, but one of the things that I started was I, I read this quote from Spurgeon where he talks about immature Christians and he talks about when you become a, when you become a believer and you submit to Christ, you, you, you enter a process of sanctification but you don't have any of it figured out. It's very confusing. I mean, it's, it's a really confusing process that you have to lean on Christ for. And what I noticed was we were going out and helping these addicts and I was making Craig Abbey. I was making so many mistakes along the way. Um, I, I still cuss like a sailor when I first got <laughs> saved. So like, I, so I, I, I would cuss and I was helping addicts. Um, I was just, I was such a wreck. I mean, that God had my heart fully. I was fully submitted to him, but he was still cleaning me up in a lot of ways. And one of the things that bothered the church was, I think they saw that. Um, and I, I about the same time I read this quote by Spurgeon and he said, Say, young believer, you know, it's frustrating. You don't understand a lot and you're still being polished and you're still being sanctified. He said, but make no mistake, you are as much a child of God as the saint that has been doing it for 60 years. He said, the moment you submit your life to Christ, he said, you are as saved as St. Paul or St. Peter or any other heroes in the faith of, of Scripture. And I told my wife then that that's, I think that's what bothered people about us, the religious crowd, is that we were just as saved as they were. Like, so what it was, uh, reckless saints was kind of a play on that. Like, Hey, we're saints. Um, yeah, we're reckless. Yeah. We're dirty. Yeah. We're, um, we're still, uh, we're still failures in a lot of ways, but we're all in and we're, we're as much of a saint as you are, as much as that bothered people. And so it became kind of a badge of honor. And the first woman that called us the reckless saints of nowhere was an old lady. And I'm pretty sure it was derogatory, (laughs) but we, uh, (laughs) Uh, so that i mean that was what i mean just just that that blowback from the the original churches that we were involved in and stuff and it it just became man we were treated as outsiders we were chewed up and spit out by the local churches and and that's why i totally understand where you guys are coming from but through that i mean we 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 just had to lean further and harder into christ and and that developed us i think you know a faith that i wouldn't trade for anything in the world those hard times so that's where Reckless Saints of Nowhere came from. Is it's actually um, because we were we were ostracized, and um, and it was from this little no name community called Nowhere, and, and that's still what the locals call Boatman to this day. It's still called Nowhere. So, I love that. Uh, awesome. Yeah, I don't live there anymore. I I, I um we moved uh, about two years ago, and it was a funny story. I was going to stay there until I died. I was never going to leave Boatman. I had this weird uh, love for that community, and I still do, and. All in one week, a, a, a snake crawled into our house and was in the back of our refrigerator. Oh, um, this is all in one week. A snake crawled into our house and back of our refrigerator. One snake fell off the, a tree and landed like a literal like foot away from my son. And then I had a motorcycle wreck to where I hit a pothole and it blew the bearings out in the in the front wheel and blew my tire out. And I went head over and I I mean I just completely uh, trashed my face and. I have tons of road rash and all this crazy stuff. And my wife was really wanting to move and it took all that in one week. And finally, after the motorcycle wreck, I was like, I love this town, but it doesn't love me back. So we got to get out of here. So that's how how I moved out of nowhere, but I still go back there all the time. My family still lives there. and We're very much part of that community, but that's the story of the reckless saints of nowhere. (laughs) Real quick, before I let you get out of here, I want you to talk about y'all's, t-shirts and y'all's apparel because it's incredible that you guys you have addicts that 
or recovering addicts that design these t-shirts, correct? I do. So I design, I design all, I've designed all of the shirts, but one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. and I'm, I'm sad because I, we normally have videos so we can see each other. I'm sad that we don't have video today because I bought a t-shirt from your website and it's called the Timmy and it's, it's a cool shirt, man. It's got the, <laughs> it's got the skull. It's very Texas. It, live free. Die, so it's very Texas. <laughs> it caught my eye, and I was like, I got to get it. I'm going to wear it when we do this recording so Jordan can see me wearing his T-shirt. Guess what? Jordan can't see me wearing this T-shirt, and I'm pretty sad about <laughs> hey, it. That's all right. Bro. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I totally yeah, believe you. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, so, cause, and then I'll let you get out of here. Yeah, thank you, man. So we started Reckless Apparel, and it was just this idea that, that I would print these shirts, and all the money would go to getting the addiction into treatment. We were, man, we, we, were, we were in bad need of funds at the time. We, we were always... Man, I, I would promise that we would get these addicts in the treatment. I would promise their that their um, entry fee was like in the mail. I was probably I was like paying bills. I'm like, yeah, it's in the mail. I promise. <laughs> and so one time I ran up like it was like over ten thousand dollars in entry fees, and literally we didn't have a dime in the bank account. So it was kind of it's like a uh, and then God came through and we paid it. I mean, it was all on time. We didn't miss anything. So the shirts were really a, I think it was Einstein. The necessity is the mother of all invention, and so it became a way to kind of channel that and to make sure all the money went to the, to the source to get the addicts into treatment. And so I was just going to design one shirt to get one addict in. And then it, we did that. Uh, we sold 65 of the original shirt and it got two addicts in. And then people said, are you going to design another one? And man, at the time it would take me like all night to print and it was just, it was madness. And so I was like, no, I'm probably never gonna do it again. And it just became its own thing. And I just kept designing shirts. So then now we have our own professional print shop in Locust Grove. And we have an amazing person that runs that shop. Her name's Adeline. And she's not an addict, but we often use um, a lot of the addicted that, that were to help. And so the addicts are still involved in the printing process. And so now it's become this thing that God has built. So it's a, a former addict designs the shirts. Um, they're, they're printed with the help of current addicts and addiction and, and seeking treatment. And then all of the money, none of that goes to anything but the addicted. So then all of the money from those shirts, the sale of reckless apparel, goes to getting the addicted into treatment. And so bus tickets or, or entry fees or plane tickets or, or whatever. And so one of the things that's really cool about it is I always say this, and I hope it, I hope it never comes off cliche, but every single person that buys um, a reckless shirt or that, that donates online, they're as much a part of reckless as my own beating heart. Like we could not do what we do without that, that flood of income that comes from selling shirts. And so when someone's wearing a Reckless Saints of Nowhere t-shirt, you can bet that that $30 is directly contributed to saving somebody's life. Like it, it's- I love it. And I, and I think when you when you have that, the success rate we have, and then, and then we're not using that for any, any other purpose than getting the addicted into treatment. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we don't have overhead that we have to- I, I, Reckless seems like a really big operation. I think we're active in like 40, I think 46 or 47 states. And and I said the quote that's the quote that's become synonymous with reckless. I think it's even on a T-shirt now. I said that on a panel. I said uh, if you're a drug addict in the United States of America, I said it's either because you want to be or you've never heard of the Reckless Saints because there's no other reason that you would be addicted to drugs. Mm. I that just came out. I mean, it just came out of me. <laughs> I didn't plan on saying <laughs> that, and believe me, I've gotten so much hate mail since I've said that. Um, <laughs> but I, I still I still stand firm in the fact that's true. If you want help for your addiction, man. All of our shirts come with a tag on them um, that tell you about us, or at least you know uh, our phone numbers on there, or our website, or whatever. Man, you can get you can get help, and 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 that's the whole point of the shirt is that somebody can see it. And you know, I, I originally picked T-shirts because even if you give a shirt away, it's still advertising your product. So I, 
the autism in me was going, wait a minute, people pay you to advertise your product. <laughs> like that's a, that's an amazing. Yeah. So anyway, that's reckless apparel and it's been going strong since 2017. Um, and, uh, hopefully we, we're releasing a new shirt today. And I often tell people, man, we get so many, so we print the shirts ourselves. We, we do all that ourselves. We ship the shirts. So people are like, Hey man, I ordered my shirt two weeks ago and it's still not here. Well, if we have been traveling a lot, or if we've just been overwhelmed with phone calls and we're getting like right now we're doing about eight placements a day. It's like, Hey man, I'm sorry, but I'm not primarily a shirt company. I'm a rescue team that just so happens to print freaking t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> so calm down. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, get off me. Like I'm not, I'm not FUBU dude. Like I don't design this. Like, <laughs> like it's the, it's, it's like a means to an end. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, anyways, that's the frustrating part. Well, I'll say this: the 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 T-shirt that I that I ordered came very quickly. <laughs> hey, and all right. <laughs> it's funny because, like, if I order something from our own side of it, you know, the Bad Roman stuff, it seems like it takes forever to get here, and it's coming from, you know, Teespring. I just got a T-shirt in yesterday that I ordered a month or so ago, <laughs> like it was lost or something. I don't know what happened, but when I ordered this T-shirt, it was here within a week. So and that was really cool. I was like, cool, I'm going to have it. So we, so I'll tell my wife, cause she, my wife oversees reckless uh, apparel and she's, man, she's adamant about getting stuff out on time. It bothers well, her. Well, your, your wife is doing a fantastic job. I do. You can't, I, she, she's going to be beaming from here to here to hear that. Yes, sir. Well, one of my favorite places to wear t-shirts like this is to the gym. Cause you know, if you go to the gym, people are always reading each other's shirts. Have you ever noticed that? Yes. And so that's, that's so, so now this CrossFit gym just donated some money to us and stuff and, the guys in our rehab are wanting to go to CrossFit, so they're going. But that's like a, I, that's, I've learned that's like a huge thing at gyms. Is like weird. They're like, hey, when are we going? When are you going to do a reckless CrossFit shirt? I'm like, dude, I've I've been ripped up and rebuilt so many times. Like I can't do CrossFit. I feel like a poser. Like releasing a reckless CrossFit <laughs> like tank top. Like what? What? Like so? I need to do that. I need to. We need to. We need to. What's that word? We need to um, collaborate on a shirt, though. You know what I mean? Like for your gym or wherever it is you work out, like a bad Roman slash reckless. Oh, that'd be awesome. That would be cool, man. I, yeah, that would be really cool. Actually, I get, like we, we hate the government too. And, <laughs> or something, or we hate. <laughs> we, you know, Jesus says, love we, your enemy. They make it very difficult to love that, that enemy. Well, I, had a, I had a bad Roman t-shirt on at the gym the other day. And this guy walked up to me. I was getting, getting on this machine. And he goes, man, I like that shirt. What I like about it is it, 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 it spurs a conversation. That's right. Like I yeah. buy this stuff because I think the designs are really cool. And I think a producer did a very good job on them. And I think that they're, it's really cool. But if it gets people thinking, hey, what's the Bad Roman Project? Or if I wear this shirt to the gym, what's Reckless Saints of Nowhere? Yeah. Live free, die sober. That's awesome. I mean, now I can tell them if they ask me about this shirt, I said, hey, I got somebody you need to talk to. If you know somebody going through this stuff. Absolutely. But man, I, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate you taking the, we normally go an hour, but this has been such a eventful conversation. We got off track some <laughs> and that's cool though. That's what we do with this. But I want folks listening. If you know somebody struggling with addiction and you know somebody that's on the brink of death, reach out to these folks because they will come to you. And that's what I love so much about this organization is I wish we'd have known about you guys prior to 2020 because I think y'all would have been able to reach TJ and it 
he would still be alive today. I, there's not a doubt in my mind. It's 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 it sucks. It sucks. It sucks. It sucks. But it's 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 like I said earlier, it's something that uh, touches every family in some aspect. And just I want to keep this conversation alive, Jordan. If if you are ever free or, or open to it, I'd like to have you back on and keep this conversation going because it's something I want to do with this project. It's a small platform. We're growing, but this is a conversation that I don't want to die because. When there was something Fauci said about like the after the lockdowns, the unintended consequences. Well, the unintended consequences shut my brother into isolation and he drank himself to death. Yeah. And I want this conversation to be carried on as much as we can. As long as the bad Roman is a thing, we're going to keep talking about it because it's not. I hate to say that I would have never talked about this had TJ not died. Cause I don't think I would have, it would not have been on my radar. And I mentioned that in the, in the, in the, part, the episode we did about TJ. Sure. It would have never been on my radar. Absolutely. And it sucks that it came to this, that we're going to keep this conversation going, but Jordan, go ahead and uh, tell us uh, where they can find you get. And I'll let you get out of here get back to your wife. So y'all can make some more t-shirts. Yeah. So the, the easiest way to get reckless, man is 918-864-2719. That's the hotline. If you call, please leave a message, leave a detailed voicemail. If you don't leave a voicemail, you probably won't get a call back because we're just we get so many calls they get lost. And then online, www.recklesssaintsofnowhere.com. You can support us, you can schedule us to come speak, you can you can buy apparel, you can do a lot of trippy stuff on there. And I'll tell you, man, it's been a, a great honor to be on the show. And I was sorry to hear about your brother. Um, I can't go back in time, but I can promise you uh, his death will not be in vain. And many people from here on out will we'll learn and um, everything that we do carries the spirit of him with us because we've got friends and loved ones that are there. And as much as I can't change that outcome, I can promise you that, that, that death won't win this battle undefeated. Like we, uh, we, we, one of the things that we say constantly is like, I can't change what happened, but we are, the, I think the only redeeming part of my character is I'm a really freaking quick learner. And one of the quotes at reckless that we say constantly over and over again is, uh, we may not be undefeated, but we've never lost a rematch. There you go. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to learn really fast, and we're going to we're going to keep going. So, Abby, Craig, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor in my life. If you guys need me for any reason, I'd love to come back. So, just give me a call. All right. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, this has been awesome, and and I just I'm so impressed with the work that you're doing, and you guys are really bringing the kingdom to earth, which is awesome. You're doing God's work, my friend. Oh man, I'm I'm blown away. Thank you so much. You're doing God's work. All right, Abby, thank you very much for coming on, Jordan. Thank you again, and I will talk to y'all soon. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com. Bad Roman.